Well, good morning, Bridgeway. How are you? It is wonderful to see you all. As Pastor Judah mentioned, I have been out on sabbatical, was gone for seven weeks. I have been back for a week and a half, and we are about to find out if I forgot how to preach. So here we go. John chapter 7 is where we're going to be. So if you have a Bible or a Bible-equipped mobile device, I would invite you to go there. It is on page 893. Three uh, and the Bible's underneath the seat in front of you. So once again, John chapter seven, page seven ninety three. Now throughout uh, this year here at Bridgeway, if you're new, we're we're doing what we always do, and that is we're teaching through different books of the Bible line by line. Uh, but one other thing we're doing this year is we're just kind of sprinkling in some selected messages uh, from the Gospel of John, one of the biographies of Jesus that we have in Scripture. So this morning, that's one of the messages I have for you, obviously, out of John's Gospel. And the story we have to look at, uh, it is an absolute doozy. It's got intrigue. It's got got scandal. It's got powerful people abusing their authority. It's, it's got Jesus going toe-to-toe with religious leaders. A life is saved. Crowds are astonished. And most importantly, it's a story that gives us a really beautiful picture of what God is like and how he relates to us and how we are invited to relate to him. One last thing to tell you before we start kind of setting the table here uh, is this. As you know, if you've been at Bridgeway for any length of time, that we put fill-in the blanks in our bulletin and on the app. And if you are a fill-in-the-blank person who eagerly awaits the fill-in-the-blank in every message, and I hope that you hope you do that, you know that normally we do that towards the beginning of the message. Not today. The fill-in-the-blank is going to be one of the last things I say. So if you're going like, he forgot it, he forgot it, just grab onto the person next to you like you're going to be okay. We will get to it, I promise. So I just, you know, I know I stress you all out if I don't mention that at the beginning. So there you go. All right, John chapter 7. Our main text starts in verse 53, but just to set the table, uh, we're going John chapter 7, verse 37. This passage takes place at the end of a festival called the Feast of of the booth. So it's a week-long celebration in Jerusalem. People would have come from all over the region to celebrate. So the city is just packed. There's all of this energy. Jesus has already done quite a bit to kind of stir up some controversy and attract the attention of various religious leaders. And now verse 37, take a look at what happens. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And we might hear those words and go, hey, those, those, those sound nice. I, I like that. If you're thirsty, come to Jesus and, and drink, and, and streams of living water will flow from your heart. I don't really know what that means, but it sure does sound nice, doesn't it? But for the Pharisees and religious leaders in attendance, those words would have pinged for them in some serious ways because in the Old Testament, God uses this metaphor of if you are thirsty, come to me and drink. Isaiah chapter 55 says, this is God speaking, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. So what Jesus is doing is he is taking a metaphor that God used for himself. If you're thirsty, come to me and drink. And he is now using it for himself. In other words, he's putting himself on a level with God. And that, in the eyes of Jewish leaders and religious officials, was a big no-no, to put it gently. Verse 39. Now this he said about the Spirit 
whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet, the spirit had not been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. So now this is John writing saying, and this is Jesus is referring to the Holy Spirit, which believers would receive following Jesus' death and resurrection. Verse 40. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. So you can see Jesus' words are, are creating quite a stir. And then in the next paragraph, there's this whole discussion between chief priests and Pharisees and different people, and they're all looking at each other, kind of saying, hey, why didn't you arrest this guy? Or, or we've never seen anybody like him. Or man, the crowd is sure going crazy for him, but come on, it's the crowd. They don't even know the law. What are we going to do about him? We've got people saying he's the Christ, God's chosen one, and that only agitates the Pharisees all the more. So they leave in a huff, and it says in Verse 53, they went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. So the festival is over. The Pharisees and the religious leaders are upset. They wanted to arrest him, but they couldn't. He was too popular, too many people around. So everyone goes home for the night, and the Pharisees begin to plan their next move. They know that Jesus is a threat. They know they need to stop him. The question is how. Uh, Ken Bailey, in his just phenomenal book, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes, uh, says this. He says that the issue was that Jesus had claimed to be this living water promised by God to his people. And that Jesus, to make this announcement in Jerusalem near the temple, was essentially a challenge to the Pharisees' authority and a challenge that happened on their own turf. This was, quite simply, not something they could just let slide. And that sets the table for our primary passage today, as we see the Pharisees' next move play out. It's a story that's one of the most well-known in all of Scripture, but there is one little issue with this story that, needs, that we need to address that's a little bit unique. So if you turn in your Bibles, John chapter 8, you're going to see two brackets right before, it's actually the last verse of John chapter 7, John seven fifty three, And then if you look down at the end of verse 11, you're going to see two more brackets. And in my Bible, right above this passage, it says the earliest manuscripts do not include John seven fifty three to 8, 11. And I'm guessing in your Bible, it says that or something similar. What are we to make of this? Well, on its surface, it's exactly what it says. Uh, we have more manuscripts of the New Testament than any other ancient writings from anywhere close to that time period. And it is true that none of the best and earliest manuscripts contain this story. There are two places in the New Testament where you're going to find passages bracketed off saying this was not a part of the original. One is right here in John chapter 8. The other is at the very end of Mark's gospel. And I carefully read about a half dozen commentaries this week, and I skimmed about 10 more because I wanted to get a wide range of just what everybody said about this passage, and zero of them tried to argue that this was part of John's original gospel. Uh, in fact, D.A. Carson, one of the most influential evangelical Bible scholars of this generation, says that despite the best efforts to prove that this narrative was originally part of John's gospel, the evidence is against it. And then Bruce Metzger, who is a world-renowned New Testament scholar, says that the evidence that this story wasn't written by John is overwhelming. 
But what Metzger says is he says that this story was almost certainly what is called an agrapha, which is a Greek term, ah meaning not, graph or grapha meaning written. So in other words, it was a story that was not written. It was circulated by oral tradition. It was widely known, but it wasn't written down until much later. In fact, one of John's primary disciples was a man named Papias, and he writes and comments about this story not long after John's life. So we know that this story circulated, people knew about it, Bruce Metzger even says this account has all of the earmarks of historical veracity. In other words, there's really no reason to doubt that it happened. It just circulated orally and then was written down later. Now, we can take a deep dive into how we know all of the things that I just said. We could talk about textual criticism and New Testament manuscripts and the reliability of the New Testament. And I think all of that stuff is pretty interesting. And I'm guessing at least three to five of you agree with me. (laughs) But we have a limited amount of time today and I prefer to use that time to focus on the story itself. So if you're interested in researching more about kind of the textual issues involved in this passage, send me an email, I'm happy to send you some resources. But here's the bottom line. There's really no reason to doubt that this story happened even though it almost certainly was not written as part of John's original gospel. Uh, however, there is significant evidence to suggest that not only did it occur, it occurred at this point in Jesus's life. So with that, we're going to look at John chapter 8. We'll read through the story, make some comments along the way, and I want to draw out some key ideas at the end. So the Pharisees and religious leaders are upset at Jesus's popularity. They're upset that Jesus is comparing himself to God, and they want to trap him. They want to show that he's a fraud. They want to do something to diminish his popularity. So we'll pick up the story, chapter 8, verse 2. Early in the morning, He came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placed her in the midst. They said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law of Moses, now in the law of Moses, in the law, excuse me, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? So Jesus returns to the temple. It's the day after the festival, which would have been a Sabbath day, a day of rest. But Jesus sits down and begins to teach, very sort of standard practice for a rabbi in that day. And it's in that moment that the Pharisees make their move. They interrupt Jesus and they throw this woman in front of him, claiming that she had been caught in the act of adultery. Now, even up to this point, This story raises a number of questions. Number one, how exactly did a group of religious leaders catch a woman in the act? Where are they hanging out? Number two, I'm not an expert on this subject, but I'm given to understand that adultery involves more than one person. Where's the dude? Where's the dude? You would think if the concern here were really about keeping the law, there would not be only one person who'd been thrown in front of Jesus. And then number three, connected to that, what's very obvious already and will become all the more plain as we work through the story, the concern here is not for God's honor. The concern here is not for holiness or anything like that. These are powerful men with an agenda and they use a relatively powerless woman as a prop. And let's just be honest, about the tragic reality that some form of this story 
has played out across the world throughout the centuries and still happens today where powerful men use those who are less powerful, use less powerful women to serve their agenda. And it's tragic. This woman isn't heard. She isn't given the chance to defend herself. Her humanity is disrespected. The image of God in her is violated. And the whole thing is just disgusting. Now, The Pharisees, as I've sort of alluded to already, they're not honest about their motives. Because for them, it's less about spiritual truth and more about maintaining power. Yes, Jesus was saying things that they found spiritually problematic, problematic, excuse me, but more than that, he was a threat to their power. And I'm gonna be honest with you, I I just, as as a human being living my life, I don't find power to be all that interesting. Like when I think like what motivates me to wake up in the morning, I'm not like, I need more power. Like, I don't know. Now, I desire influence. I wanna be influential. I wanna be the sort of person that lives my life in such a way that I'm, I'm trustworthy and I can help, help people and they can, they can come to me and respect what I have to say and I can make a positive difference in their lives. Like I wanna be a person of influence and I think that that's, that's a good thing. But I don't know that I have that much use for power. And I just want to talk about power for a minute because I think, man, power, boy, we got to be careful with it. Something I find interesting is I I read a decent amount of history and and just ever since I was a kid, I don't know why, ever since I was a kid, I've loved reading biographies, just stories of influential people and kind of what made them tick. And and I try to stay somewhat uh, up to to speed on, on world events when I can. And it never ceases to amaze me how much the desire for power can just decimate a person's moral compass. Like when, when just this obsession with power gets into the human heart, it just wrecks havoc. I mean, shoot, come on, just look at the world of fiction, right? Every Disney movie you've ever seen, there's usually at least one character craving power. And it ain't Simba. It ain't Cinderella. It ain't Aladdin. It's always the bad guy, right? It's always the bad guy. It seems, and and history tragically bears this out in a hundred different ways, that when the desire for power gets into the human heart, nearly everything else goes out the window. Honesty, fairness, humility, you name it. Now listen, you might hear me going, well, why, why, why do you, why do you, you're criticizing powerful people. No, I'm not. I don't think having power is a problem. I think you can, if power is is used for a good purpose, you can do a lot of good if you have power. It's when we crave power that it becomes problematic. It's very similar to money in that regard. It's not problematic to have money, but when you crave it above all else, man, oh man, boy, will it get you into trouble. Right now I'm reading uh, the book about Alexander Hamilton that inspired Lin-Manuel Miranda to write the play. Way less dancing in the book, by the way. And... (laughs) Earlier this week, there's a whole chapter in the book about one of our founding fathers, whose name you know, but I will not say, because his name is not the point. There's a whole chapter about him. And it's just amazing to me, as I read this chapter about this particular founding father, and I've read other biographies of people from that era, and what, what I read in the Hamilton book more or less squares with what I've read elsewhere. It's just amazing to me. This was a man who lived his life desperately craving power and approval. 
He wanted to be respected so badly. His ego was so easily bruised. He wanted to have people look to him for authority. He wanted power. And what's amazing to me, I need to read a biography of him next to find out a little more of his kind of what made him tick. Because from everything I've read, it seems that he just wanted the power for his own sake. He just wanted to be powerful. He just wanted to be well-liked for no other reason than just to be powerful and well-liked. And (laughs) the tragic irony is everyone hated him. (laughs) Everyone hated him. Man, power just messes us up. And, And too often, let's talk about church. In church world, we see people grasping for power for the same reasons. I've heard too many stories. It's not about the kingdom. It's not about helping others. It's not about dying to self and serving God. It's about being able to bark jump and have people that will quickly say how high. And I've heard too many stories of people who have suffered spiritual abuse from pastors and leaders who are in it for their own ego and power. And if that's your story, I'm heartbroken for your experience and I need you to know that God sees you and God is with you. Man, for all of us, for every single one of us, I think it's a good thing to desire to be a person of influence. I think it's a good thing to desire to say, I want to take whatever God has given me, if I can invest it in, in others, if I can invest it to serve God and to, to help other people, man, that's a good thing. Because I think, I think influence flows from our character, doesn't it? I mean, you think of the people that you allow to influence you, the people that you really respect, you respect their character, don't you? So I think it's a good thing to desire to be a person of influence, but man, oh man, be careful about chasing power. Be careful about chasing power. Or at least ask yourself the question, what is power for? Because again, if you have the right motives, if it's truly honestly about helping people, power can be a good thing. Power can be very helpful for getting things done. But if it's just for our own ego, come on, it'll never be enough. We'll sacrifice everything for it. We'll hurt ourselves and we'll hurt people. In this story, The religious leader's desire for power created all sorts of problems. Not the least of which, as I mentioned earlier, they were totally dishonest about their motives, weren't they? And we just see this in powerful people all the time. They're totally dishonest about their motives. This wasn't about accountability for someone who had violated the law. It was about trapping Jesus. And I just, man, if we're gonna be people as followers of Jesus who aren't hijacked by our desire for power, that is just a check we need to put in our spirit, that we would just make the commitment, God, I'm going to be honest about my motives all the time. I am going to be ruthlessly honest about my motives all the time and with no exceptions, because if we can't be honest, man, that messes up families, that takes down companies, it divides churches, it just, just the list goes on, man. And even as I look out into our world today, just, there's so many controversies, we argue about different things, we're divided over all these different issues, and it's just amazing. You look at all the different issues we argue about as a society, if we are really, 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 really brutally honest, most of those issues are not about the issue. They are about people leveraging the issues to protect their power. God, help us. Man, be careful with power. Man, be careful with power. Verse six. They said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. In case there was any doubt, now the motives are plain to see. They're trying to trap him, something they did some other places, Mark 3, Mark 10, Luke 6. And here's why this is a trap in their minds. Jesus had one of two options. Number one, He could violate the law of Moses. 
hey, Jesus, it says that we need to stone this person. What do you say? Jesus could say, well, listen, yes, I know that's what the law says, but listen, we're under Roman occupation right now. We're not able to follow the law that literally, so just this isn't going to work out for us. We can't stone this woman. And what would they say? Look at him. He, he violates the law of Moses. He denigrates the law of Moses. And that is not exactly a charge you want thrown at you if you're a rabbi. But the other option is he could violate the law of Rome. As I said, Jerusalem was under Roman occupation at the time. And one of the Roman laws over the Jewish people was that they were not allowed to carry out executions. In fact, just a little bit of Bible trivia for you. In John chapter 18, towards the end of Jesus' life, Pilate, this Roman official, is a little bit exasperated about what to do with Jesus. And he says to the religious leaders, basically, you take him and do what you want. And the religious leaders respond back, essentially saying, uh, you know we're not allowed to kill him, right? They're acknowledging this law that Romans said you are not allowed to carry, Jews are not allowed to carry out executions. And keep in mind, this is happening at the end of a big festival. Security would have been on high alert. There are Roman officials watching this interaction take place. So, Jesus can violate the law of Moses, get himself into trouble. Jesus could violate the law of Rome, get himself arrested. I guess he's just stuck. Just kidding, he's Jesus, he's never stuck. <laughs> so what does he do? He does what any of us would do in this situation. He gets on the ground and starts drawing in the dirt. <laughs> Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger in the ground. And this, of course, begs the question, what did he write? Don't we all want to know what did he write? I will tell you this. New Testament scholars have all sorts of ideas. Some say that maybe he wrote, he wrote guilty or something like that in the ground. That he was actually confirming the charge. Saying, okay, you said she's guilty. Yes, she's guilty. Let's, let's go. What are we going to do? Almost like he's calling their bluff. Some say that he just got on the ground just to try to draw attention away from this woman. Uh, others say, and this seems a bit far-fetched to me, that he just got on the ground and was doodling. Okay. Or, or, or that he was just so grieved at their hardness of heart that he was just taking a moment. Maybe. Two, two interesting theories I read that I saw in multiple commentaries was that perhaps Jesus scribbled out a reference to Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 13, which says, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth. For they have forsaken the Lord, the foundation of living water. Perhaps this was Jesus prophetically acting out this verse, a verse surely the Pharisees would have known, saying, you have turned away and you're being written in the earth. This would have inflamed them all the more. One last theory that I thought was interesting that also came from Ken Bailey's book was that this took place on the Sabbath. And of course, on the Sabbath, work was prohibited. And Jewish rabbis throughout the centuries had done all this work to determine, okay, what constitutes work, what's truly prohibited on the Sabbath, and what is allowed. And it had been determined that writing with ink or in any sort of manner that left a permanent mark was work. But writing in the dust that did not make a permanent mark was allowed, that that wasn't work. That maybe this was Jesus' way of saying, hey, listen, I know the law. I know how you interpret it. If you want to talk about the law and what really matters, I am very prepared to have that conversation. Maybe. Maybe that's what he did. So what was he actually doing and what did he actually write? We don't know. And we have no way of knowing. <laughs> One of my favorite professors in seminary used to say, the Bible doesn't tell us what we want to know. The Bible tells us what God wants us to know. And that ticks us off. Like, 
how true that is. So God doesn't need us to know exactly what Jesus wrote because it's not the point of the story. Verse seven. And they continued to ask him. As they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to him, said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus says, okay, if we're gonna stone this woman, let the one who is without sin be the first to throw a stone. Now, we need to understand what Jesus was saying and what he was not saying here. First, what he was not saying, because verses like this can get misused by those seeking to avoid accountability for their actions. He is not saying that one must be perfectly sinless before they can name injustice or sin elsewhere. Should you be pulled over this week, I do not recommend that you say to the officer, let she who is without sin write the first ticket. I mean, you do you. I just don't think that's going to go well for you, right? Too often, and there's a, there's a serious point here, too, too often, when we get held accountable for something, our first impulse is to defend ourselves by saying the accuser isn't perfect. Or, or maybe we will shift our blame to someone else. Maybe if we're just really feeling brash about it, we might even quote this verse but let's understand what's going on. When we're held accountable and that is our initial reaction, and we react, when we react in that way, that is code for I know I'm guilty. It's just I'd rather lash out than actually deal with it. And man, we just remain stuck, right? And nothing gets fixed when that happens. So Jesus isn't saying you have to be perfect in order to enforce justice. If that were the case, every justice system in the world would collapse. Jesus is not giving us an out to avoid all accountability all the time because no one is perfect, right? But what he is doing is he's appealing to the Old Testament law, Deuteronomy 13 and Deuteronomy 17, say that in cases of execution or capital punishment, the eyewitnesses need to throw the first stone. He's basically saying, let the one who is truly obeying the requirements of the law in this case throw the first stone. Let the one who can say with a clean conscience, I am doing this out of pure motive, which executing someone out of pure motive seems a little bit weird, but it's the idea that I am being completely honest in what is going on here. Because see, in the first century, in order to prosecute someone for adultery, the law actually did state that you had to have eyewitnesses. Very weird, but okay. So as you can imagine, this meant cases were not prosecuted very often because the standard of evidence was almost impossibly high. So what a lot of scholars think happened in this case, and as you've probably figured out by now, we, we don't have tons of clarity about some of the background details of this story. But what a lot of scholars think is likely is that people in town knew about this woman and the gentleman she was having an affair with. That their story was known. Rumors had spread and all of that. And they think that it's likely that what the religious leaders would have done is they would have gone to the man and they would have confronted him and they would have either bribed him or blackmailed him to confirm the story. To say, yes, indeed, this is going on. And then again, because their concern is not for God's holiness or, or whatever the case may be, they let the guy go and they go chase after the woman. We don't know for sure that that's what happened, but it's a strong possibility. But once again, regardless, 
This wasn't about God's honor. It wasn't about justice. It was about rage towards Jesus and a desperation for power. They knew they did not have the evidence that they needed. So when Jesus says, let the one who was without sin, let the one who is operating from pure motive and is who is obeying the law perfectly, let him be the one to throw the first stone, they're stung, they're sunk. He's basically saying, okay, who caught her in the act? You say she's been caught in the act. Who, who caught her in the act? If we're so concerned about the law here, let's make sure that we're obeying it. And they've got nothing. And more than that, Jesus is also saying, okay, you want, me to, you want me to violate Roman law out of obedience to the law of Moses? Okay, I'll do it. I'll get myself in trouble. Who's joining me? Go ahead and step out of the crowd and show your face. And who, who, who else is gonna violate the law in front of Roman authorities? Oddly, no one seemed willing to do that either. So now their motives are plain to see. Jesus exposes they don't have the evidence they need. They are guilty of violating the law themselves. And now these powerful men who came to try to shame Jesus leave ashamed themselves. Score one for the good guys, right? But before we celebrate too much, we need to be clear-eyed about what happened here. Jesus, once again, has humiliated powerful people on their own turf. Corrupt powerful people on their own turf. And when corrupt, powerful people get humiliated, they don't tend to say, oh man, he really got us. Shame on us. We should probably be less corrupt. They don't tend to look in the mirror and say, boy, we should change our ways, right? When corrupt, powerful people get shamed, what do they want? Revenge. They want revenge. So the woman is saved. The men leave angry and ashamed. She, who's bracing for a gruesome death, now realizes she's going to live. And what she would have known beyond a shadow of a doubt is that this rabbi who stepped in to save her has done something that is really going to get him in trouble because in her mind, they were mad at him or they were mad at her and now they're mad at him. More on that in a moment. So Jesus looks at her. Verse 10. Jesus stood up and said to the woman, woman, which would have been a term of respect in that culture, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And remember, Jesus never asked questions because he was lacking information. He had a reason he wanted to ask this woman a question and have her respond. She responds, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. And that's it. That's the end of the story. And we know exactly nothing about the rest of this woman's life. We don't even know anything about her faith. The word translated Lord here in, in verse 11, probably a better translation would be sir. It was more a general term of respect than an acknowledgement of his divinity. We're simply like so often in the New Testament as Jesus has these encounters and people go on their way, we're just sort of left to wonder what happened. Now the sub subtitle of this message is how God deals with our sin. And I want you to see how what Jesus does with this woman has just profound implications for how you and I think about God, for how he relates to us and how we relate to him. First of all, in this story, look at who Jesus has in front of him. This is so powerful to me. Look at who Jesus has in front of him. He has got the supposedly holy people. He's got the people with all of the power and authority. And he's got a woman thrown in the dirt. And if Jesus cared about power, and if Jesus cared about his own reputation, don't you think he would have sided with the powerful people? 
Don't you think he would have looked the other way at their sins and joined in with them so that he could experience some of the power and authority that they have? Don't you think he would have wanted to get in good with them? Don't you think there's a ton of incentive for Jesus to sacrifice his integrity, look the other way, and join with the powerful people? But he doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't join with the corrupted, powerful, fancy, religious leaders. What does he do? He gets down in the dirt with the woman. Why do I find Jesus so compelling? For a lot of reasons. Because he's the sort of God who he's not interested in, in, in this power and authority, corrupt sort of game. He gets down in the dirt with us. He meets us in our brokenness. He, what's he doing in this story? He's down in the dirt with the woman. He's looking her in the eye. He is humanizing her. He is affirming the image of God in her. I love that Jesus gets down in the dirt. He doesn't stand with the powerful. He gets down in the dirt with the powerless. I love a generation later, one of Jesus' best friends, Peter, would write in 1 Peter chapter 5 that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Jesus is not concerned with power and reputation. Jesus is in the dirt. In so many places in our lives, we're just stuck playing all these power games and trying to appear impressive and, hey, look at me and look how much authority I have and look who I can boss around and all of this. And all the while, Jesus is in the dirt. We don't find Jesus posturing and politicking in the, eye, in the, in the halls of power. Jesus is in the dirt. Once again, looking the powerless in the eye, affirming them, dignifying them, showing them that they're valuable. The dad of one of my best friends is a pastor in Southern California, and during my sabbatical, I got to go to his church and hear him preach, and he just had this incredible line. He said, if we can't see God, maybe we're not looking low enough. I'm like, man, that's good. I'm stealing it for my own sermon. If we can't see God, maybe we're not looking low enough. God is near to the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. You might look at your life today and you might feel like you're stuck in the dirt. Maybe it's because of choices you've made. Let's be real honest, this woman was not innocent. Maybe you're stuck in the dirt because of choices that you made. I got good news for you, Jesus will meet you in the dirt. Amen. Maybe you're stuck in the dirt because you're a victim of injustice. I got good news for you. Jesus will meet you in the dirt. He rejects the opportunity to stand with the powerful and instead, with a radical commitment to truth-telling and compassion, he influences the lowly and defends the defenseless. Jesus is in the dirt. He gets in the dirt with us. And then just look at how he engages with this woman. After this costly, sacrificial demonstration of love, what does he say to her? Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. See, that's not a call to moral perfection, but make no mistake about it, it is a call to change her life. But notice, he only says that after he has demonstrated this profound love for her in an incredibly, in an incredibly costly way. See, hypocritical, toxic religion has us say, look how well I'm keeping all the rules, look how good I am, and while I'm at it, look how lousy all y'all are. But see, when we follow Jesus, we are transformed by his love and his grace and his mercy. And we don't, why do I need to point out the sins of another? 
or if I'm going to, it's gonna be in a context where we know we love each other and my motives are pure and I want nothing but the best. It's not to make you feel bad, it's because I love you and I want you to grow and I've demonstrated that love for you, right? But I love what Jesus, Jesus does here. He upholds the law. Like, let, let, let's not, let's be very clear about that. Jesus upholds the law. Adultery was and is a very, very serious issue in the eyes of God. He does not excuse the woman's sin. He does not condone the woman's sin. But listen, he tells the woman not to commit adultery anymore. But what does he do before he does that? He saves her life. He shows that he's for her. He gets down in the dirt with her. He humanizes her. So, so when he says to her, go and sin no more, he's not saying, hey, listen, go and sin no more because if you keep this up, you might have people wanting to stone you again and I might not be here to help next time. He's not saying go and sin no more because you're afraid. He's saying go and sin no more because you've met the living God and you have been transformed by his grace and his mercy. See, Jesus meets us in the dirt and he loves us enough to not condone our sin. It is fashionable in this age and in every age before this one to try to, try to shove aside sin as if it were not a big deal. It is a big deal and Jesus loves us enough to not condone it. But what he invites us to do is he invites us to step out of our shame, which will only keep us stuck in our sin. He invites us to step out of our shame and receive his grace and mercy and let, it, and let that transform us so that our lives change. So then our inspiration for holiness can come not from fear. Our inspiration for holiness can come not so that it's something to gain power and lord it over others. Our inspiration for holiness comes from love. And when we're motivated by love, this pursuit of holiness is humble and sincere. It's not arrogant and judgmental. Last thing and then we're done. Consider for a moment this story from the perspective of the woman. She, she is apprehended by angry religious officials. She likely has no idea that they're really after Jesus, they're not really after her. All she knows is that she has been caught there is a penalty coming her way and she is powerless to stop it. But then Jesus steps in. She is watching this take place right before her eyes. And then Jesus steps in. And as I alluded to a moment ago, she then knows that whatever rage was directed towards her is now directed towards this rabbi who has stepped in and saved her life. Whatever condemnation belonged to the woman because of her sin was now, now belonged to Jesus. And we, of course, know in the end, Jesus was condemned to death and lost his life. She had to know, this woman had to know, that by confronting powerful people, Jesus was asking for punishment for himself. But he did it anyway. It's a costly demonstration of love that saves her life. And what this woman experiences is a picture of what Jesus offers to every one of us. Let's take it out of the first century and into today. Because we, like this woman, we are condemned under the law by our sin. We are sinful people by nature and choice. We were facing death and eternal separation from God. But rather than leave us to suffer that fate, Jesus came to earth. 
Jesus confronted injustice. Jesus confronted religious abuse. Jesus stood up for the marginalized. Jesus healed the sick. Jesus proclaimed the arrival of the kingdom of God. He invited people to repent and believe. And at the end of his life, he went to the cross where he showed us the ultimate costly demonstration of love in the same way that Jesus stepped in front of the woman, Jesus steps in front of us. I told you I'd say the fill in the blank. I did not forget. Here's what it is. Jesus takes our sin upon himself. Jesus takes our sin upon himself. He does not condone our sin. He removes the penalty and takes it upon himself. It is on the cross that the Bible says Jesus subjected the rulers and authorities to open shame. It is on the cross where the Bible says Jesus canceled the record of debt that stood against us. It is on the cross where Jesus took the penalty for our sin so that by faith we can receive his righteousness. And so the message of the cross is not that our sin is not a big deal. To the contrary, it's a huge deal. As the old hymn says, it was my sin that held him there. But, we, but the message of the cross is we have a God who does not simply get down into the dirt with us. We have a God who goes to the cross for us. And we are invited to look at the cross and see the depth of the Father's love. And we are invited to walk away from the cross and go and sin no more. Not because we are afraid of punishment, certainly not as a means to gain power, but because we have met the living God and we have been transformed by the beauty of his grace and his mercy and his love towards us. So may the motivation for our obedience never be fear and never be power. May it only be love. And may we go and sin no more as an act of love to the God who has done everything for us. I want to invite the prayer team to come on up. And as we wrap up, I, I know just in a room this size, there are many of us who if we look at our lives, we'd say, man, I'm, I'm in the dirt. For whatever reason, I'm in the dirt. And maybe you just need someone to pray with you and remind you that Jesus is in the dirt with you. Come on up and, and see these folks. They're here today hoping for the chance to pray for you. You will make their day by letting them pray for you. Come on up and, and see them. They'd love to pray. You got anything else going on? We're, we're here to pray for you. We don't want you to carry that burden out the door without coming here and, and being prayed for and lifting it up to the Lord. So for the rest of us, let me pray uh, and we'll be dismissed. God, we thank you that you get down in the dirt for us. We thank you that you went to the cross for us. We thank you that as you showed a costly demonstration of love to this woman, you show a costly demonstration of love to each one of us. So God, in a world where so many get caught up in power games, may we be men and women of influence. In a world where so many get caught up in power games, may we instead seek to be people who humbly follow you and respond to the great love that you have shown us. May we be people who are willing to get down in the dirt for others, to lift them out and to show them grace. God, may we be people who know that we are loved by you no matter what so that we don't need to walk in shame, but rather we can joyfully pursue a holiness that is inspired by love. God, would you help us as Bridgeway and every other church in this region? May we be just full of just men and women who can share that kind of love into our communities, just communities that so desperately need it. And God, may you receive all of the glory for that. We love you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen. amen. God bless you. Have a great rest of your weekend.